turn. Alright, take him. Take him. It's a nice buck. Take him. Heck yeah, buddy. Awesome shot. He's going down. Welcome to the Hunt and Fish Network podcast. All right, ladies and gents, welcome back to another episode of the Hunt and Fish Network podcast. I'm your host, Ed Woolley, a.k.a. Mr. Muley Tynes. And today on episode eight, we've got the man, the myth, the legend, the son of Wayne Carlton, Mark Carlton of Carlton Calls. How's it going, buddy? Good, but how about you? Not too bad, man. It's uh, good to finally get you on here, man. No, we've been struggling kind of to, to hook up between living life and doing everything else. It's uh, I'm glad to finally get here. Yeah. You want to uh, start off by giving us a little introduction to the podcast listeners? Sure. So uh, Carlton's Calls, that the kind of history on that is, well, Carlton's Calls is, is still in existence. We're running a call brand today, which is native by Carlton. Um, Carlton's Calls, we sold in about 2000. We started that original business with the first diaphragm turkey call, diaphragm elk call off the turkey call in about 82, 83 was when the business started. Um, and then over the years, that thing built up for 17, 18 years and we sold the hunter specialties and kind of had about seven year term there. And then as time went on, we, we started a, a new brand. We got away from the corporate and kind of came back to private and started native by Carlton's calls about 2015. So we've kind of switched what we did. <clears throat> the Wayne Carlton call line kind of became kind of a, a Walmart entry level product over the years after going corporate. And native is much more kind of a custom higher end, high quality, try to really go after just the core elk hunter guys um, for the last few years has, has been our target and kind of the change the way that we're doing things from the past. Heck yeah. I know uh, pretty excited to uh, get some of those custom muley tine diaphragms for this season. They're coming. Heck Have yeah. Have you submitted the art on that, by the way? No, I, I still okay. got to get, it was on my old, it's on my old Mac and it kind of crapped bed. So I got to get some artwork on my new laptop and get it sent over to you. But I had a lot of guys that really liked that artwork. You know, I know it sounds good. We can, yeah, whenever you guys get it done, we can put something together. So. Right on. You want, let's, uh, let's hear the, uh, history on how the whole Carlton calls native by Carlton got started with your dad and. So dad truly, dad's been a, a, he's been a very like storybook situation. And the fact that he was, he was, you know, dropped out of high school in the 10th grade, um, made his living, ended up making his living as a salesman and pest control business. And really, you know, he was just a typical Florida redneck from back East. You know, it's, it, we're kind of going over a lot of dad's history the last couple of years now as he's gotten older, but, you know, I look at him and, you know, I, I think one of the things about him, he was such a common guy, but he'd, he'd come from the same ground that everybody's still walking, coming out here to go and hunt today. He'd made his way to Colorado in the early 70s, just taking kind of the uh, get the boys away from work kind of deal, come out to Colorado, go deer hunting and elk hunting, which is how he ended, ended up out here. After about three years of coming out, they they just made the leap and jump to, to come out and say, hey, we're going to move to Colorado. So he came out probably in 74. Um, our background was strongly, of course, being Southern stuff, being in the Turkey side. And Wayne actually had started the, so the Turkey Federation started in 73. 
in 74, he actually started the first chapter in Gainesville, Florida back then. Um, we moved shortly after in late 75, ended up here. And then once he got here, <clears throat> he, same deal, there was no turkeys here. And that was so much of his background and passion that he started the first tur turkey chapter, National Wild Turkey Federation chapter here in Montrose. But in the middle of all that, he did one thing that nobody had done before, and it was just an idea that popped into his head. And when he came out here, he had no clue what he was doing, didn't know anything about elk. They were literally just like everybody else coming out and going hunting. And he had, had heard a kiki run while deer hunting up in Craig. And his first instinct was like all of us, like, like anytime we see something or hear something, it's just human nature to immediately lock onto what you know and what you've heard. So the first thing he locked onto with that kiki run being a real high shrill whistle and hearing it out in Colorado, what he missed was it was an elk bugle. So he immediately put that in, in, in his brain and it just stuck with him for about a year or two. And then using his turkey diaphragms, he's like, man, I can, I can hit that same note of that kiki run. He's like, he says, that's almost like that elk bugle. So he tied the two together and started using his turkey call as a elk call. And that's what started the whole deal. And then after a few years, locally guys had figured out who he was and, and he could do this crazy stuff on a turkey call that nobody else could do. And it was ultra realistic because at the time, man, I, I do you remember those old corrugated like copper pipes had like two little plastic ends and it was coiled up. Yeah. And just blew through it and whistle, you know, mm -hmm. and we yep. just pop, 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 you know, just make just a whistling sound. So that was like the only thing on the marketplace at the time. So mm -hmm. to go from that to a diaphragm, I mean, you can just imagine how much of a jump that was at that time. So what ended up happening is guys got to know his reputation, be able to do these crazy things with a turkey call and could sound ultra realistic as an elk. So he got drafted in here at Montrose. The city of Montrose um, grabbed a hold of some local guys. Montrose was really pushing at the time to bring in commerce into Montrose so at the time that was that was hunting and fishing that, that was a huge piece for us statewide so they had bought a hunt for a rider from Outdoor Live they had got some guys together that did like hunting referral services and they they got a rider together they got everybody together and, and dad ended up being the guide for that hunt and the rider's name was Rich LaRocco and I think Rich still lives in Sandy Utah um, he's still going to, but they, uh, <laughs> when Rich came out here, you can imagine like, like he's never been around any of that before. He's never heard any of it before. And even dad laughs to today. He says, man, more stuff happened on that. He says that stuff like that's never even happened again. And they just came into what I always call like, you only hit a few of them, I think in your lifetime where you just have this great air, you have a convergence of elk and all hell breaks loose, man. There's just elk everywhere. There's, uh, you know what I mean? I've like, I got into one last year. It hasn't happened in 15 years. You know, they're just rare. So he'd run into that with Rich and he's bugling elk or fighting, tearing apart trees. And they're, I mean, just all pandemonium broke loose. So it set a huge impression to Rich. So Rich had come out to write an article on the guiding outfitting in Montrose. And then he got to know Wayne at the time and the whole backstory and this turkey call like it was just such a dynamic story Rich grabbed me and says hey man I'm, I'm going to go back I'm going to write this story and get this done but I'm coming back out he says we're going to do another story he says and when I do this he says what you have he says you don't realize it man he says I don't know and dad had started a pest control business a few years after we had moved out here so at the time that's what we were doing we we're doing pest control work 
And, uh, you know, Rich looked at him and said, hey, if, <laughs> I don't know if you really like killing bugs. I don't like you crawling underneath houses and playing with black widows and all the crap that goes with the pest control business. He says, but this is a hell of an idea. If you don't grab it and run with it, then you're going to miss out. He says, but this is going to be a huge opportunity for you. So we took that time frame that Rich was gone. We we and we put together a small product line of um, a, the old traditional just vacuum cleaner hose. Actually, it was pool cleaner hose. It ended up being for a grunt tube. And he did an audio tape, and he had a single red and a double blue and a triple brown, which was the staple of Wayne Carlson's calls even still to today. And that's what started with. But he had that ori original lightning rod coming in from. Rich Loraco, and then he just grabbed a hold of it. And by year two, man, that things were just gripping and ripping and taking off, you know. But but coming in, like you and I look at the world now, Ed, and it's man, there's just so much media, there's so many channels. I mean, at the time back in the day, I mean, there was just there was sports of field and outdoor life, and there wasn't a ton of resources there to educate people. So I mean, it, it'd be, be like going on Rogan, you know, it's just an immediate lightning rod to your business. So that's the way that it fell for dad. And then with a couple of years after that, you know, um, home tape recorders came out because about that time, 83, 84, I can remember being a little kid, like you had to go, you had to go to the store and rent a VHS tape and you had to rent the projector because you couldn't afford to buy one at the time and take it all home to watch a home movie. You know, that, that was, that was when that stage was really taking place. And so he just caught that wave of everything shifting and changing and, and really helped pave that road into the elk hunting today. But that was his, that was his one big, you know, claim to fame was being the first guy to come out with a diaphragm elk call and making that big crossover. And then he kind of, you know, I mean, you know, well, as I do, dad really kind of became that, that one of the big Western outdoor adventure guys that I was teaching and educating and kind of leading the way in, in those eighties and early nineties. Yeah, no, dude. I I remember when I called my first bull in with his grunt tube and one of his, I think it was the brown one. I was yeah. like 10 years old, man. I was, yeah, I was, I was born in 85 and that would have been in the mid nineties when I called my first bull in, but. Yep. Yep. So, and same deal too, you know, we'd bounced around a little bit there and um, business had just taken off and really run hard into the nineties and then in industry wide, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because I've being raised in the business, like we started, we started the business in 83. So I was like seven, eight years old right there. <clears throat> and the, uh, just to be a part of that industry and the industry goes in chapters and phases. It seems like every 15, 20 years, there's like a, you know, you have a group of guys that come in and they help kind of pave the way and then they kind of phase out and then the the next group of young guys come in and there's always a big change in business and everything else and watching that over the years of watching that transition and, and phase in you know it was he was just a road a road paver in that category at the time you know and it's now we're on to the next thing you know it's it's a different age it's we're figuring more stuff out and you know we just keep on moving yeah i mean if can you imagine if social media would have been around back when your dad first launched man it it would have went nuts. Well, and I don't know, like, well, right. Some of those original ideas, like you think about even in the hunting industry, how much we, we recycle old ideas, how much uh, information were is out there, but it gets to be redundant too at the same time. But I mean, I don't know. It it, it was what it was at the time. And, and even 
15 years from now, I mean, I'm sure it'll shift again. I'm sure we'll have having different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just cool to see how grunt tubes have went from that, his brown deal to now it looks almost like a wiffle ball bat type style. And when we figured so much out, right. The, uh, and back in the day we built what was available at the time. So, so we used basically a, a Turkey call platform at the time and converted it over. Um, and like we've done, we've done more development in the last couple of years doing diaphragms than I think we ever did since 1983. Like we have really gone to task on some stuff, but in doing that, I've, I've learned more in the last two years than I think this entire time. And, you know, but I think that's just the evolution of things, you know, so I, I think we learned on one thing and, and that worked great for the time. And then as time gone on, you know, ideas just build on top of each other and competition always makes us better. And guys are trying different ideas and doing different things. And, you know, the biggest thing for me, I think, as time's gone on with business and development is, is figuring out, really getting good at asking the question why and looking at it as an onion and just peeling back the layers, man, and figuring out what makes everything tick. But, but I mean, I think that's just business and ideas in general. Everything leads to something, you know, the dad. So dad's first diaphragm he ever saw. This was always a cool story. I always, always remember he was he was like 17, 18. So this had to be like back in the 50s ish. Like in game call companies, like the oldest one I can find would be like old game calls, which is like the late 1800s. Lynch was one of the primary turkey labels, and they started like in 42, I think. So we're looking at about 50-ish right now. But but dad remembers the first diaphragm he ever saw was he had, a, had an uncle, and uh, he <laughs> he'd gone in the guy's house. And long story short, you know, he's sitting over there, and he starts making turkey sounds with his mouth. And dad's really not that old he's like man how what how are you even doing that like we're you know it was the same deal like it was an unheard of idea and so he pulls it out and it's a it's a condom that has been stretched between a he took the um, lead top off of a toothpaste tube and sandwiched a condom in between it and that was the frame and then he just used gray duct tape and taped it over the top and cut it out and that was the first first diaphragm that dad had ever saw and i'm sure somebody wrote like a little little blip on like, you know, you can do this trick to make it, make some kind of call type, you know, it was just a thing. And now look at where we're at today. You know, we're doing crazy machining and designing. We're learning more about back pressure and tubes and latexes are changing. And and now, you know, like we're building three sizes of frames this year, you know, this just, just keeps snowballing and which I think is cool. I mean, ideas are always great. Yeah. I was going to ask you what, uh, what technology you guys got coming out for this 2023 season? So I, I don't know if it, I'm going to call it technology. I just look at it as I think at this point in the game, there's, I mean, we've been building calls commercially hard, right? So since the forties, so we've, we've got some time down the road. I think we're at a point where an original idea is really, really hard. And I think we're fine tuning some really good ideas that have already been out there. And, and I feel like guys either get used to things size wise like so where i'm going with this is like the size of, of frames in your mouth so when we no matter who you talk to whether you talk to Corey or jason or any of these guys that that this is what we do man we, we build elk calls and we teach people how to how to use them and how to hunt the one thing that comes up from everybody's mouth right out of the gate is fit comes first find what's comfortable what works for you and go from there so we went into design pretty hard well, really, it's been five years. Really got aggressive the last two and finished it out. But we ended up just building you know, a domed over style 
And domed over is important because it builds back pressure in your mouth differently than the traditional style open frame calls. But in, in doing a domed over, like, all right, if we're going to do this and fit matters, then we need to figure out one platform that works really, really well. And then we need to take that platform, make sure we, we have multiple options out there so we can fit everybody. So we've done one frame that we're calling the V3, and then we're, we're doing it in a large frame, a medium frame, and a small frame. So we can pretty much fit everybody across the board. And then we have a couple different options on the tape that goes around it even. So people can, I mean, we really try to cover every base that we can in helping guys be as successful as they can running calls. And, and that, that's kind of been our goal. Um, and then we kind of looked at two tubes were the same kind of conversation for me. There's been a lot of really good design out there, um, but it's trying to figure out what works best <clears throat> and they all work best at different things. So I, I worked on coming out with something that one, you could take hunting that was small enough and still compact, but still held and performed enough with, with whatever mouth read you had that it had enough back pressure to really maximize what your, whatever call you ended up using in your mouth. Cause elk calls and turkey calls in general, guys don't realize it. Your mouth is a sound chamber. It builds up back pressure just like it does in a turkey call or any external read type call. Um, you know, guy, I don't know if guys think about when they pick up that duck call and they have the tendency just to cut their hand over the end. And when they're doing that, they're building up back pressure so you can hit a higher note. Diaphragms are the same way. Your mouth is a sound chamber. So what we put on the outside of our lips into it, all that makes a difference on how those reads perform. And even if you start looking and start asking questions and start like looking at tubes, even on like, say, the uh, world championship stage, if you watch guys on where they point that tube towards the floor, what the baffle looks like at the end of the tube, the size of the tube, the length of the tube, the hand, like all those things play into how those reads perform. And it's just trying to find out what works works for guys best and then give them a usable option for hunting season, which has kind of been our goal. No matter what we do is we want to build hunting season stuff first, and then we'll worry about fun stuff later. Heck yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of guys, like the number one question they ask me, they're like, do you use a grunt tube with latex on it that you just blow into, or do you prefer diaphragm? And I tell them I, I started out doing just a blow into a grunt tube type style deal, but then I didn't think it sounded realistic like the diaphragms do in my opinion. So I've, I've been on the diaphragm for the last 10 or 12 years. Yeah. And right. And I've been blowing one forever. It seems like, and, and you are, you're still going to get the most realistic stuff, I think, out of a mouth read period. But I think when it comes to hunting, and I'm going to use a turkey hunting analogy here. Guys that turkey hunt a lot, and, and the Western guys are not, if you go back east, turkey hunting is an art form. Running calls an art form, everything. Those guys are into their craft, they're, they're, and they're into speaking the language for sure. Um, the elk guys, we are on the elk side. When it comes to turkey, we don't, I think guys just go turkey out here because we don't have anything else to do and we can shed hunt at the same time. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not quite as serious, but when you're turkey hunting back, back east, especially having multiple tools. And when I say tools, I mean, being able to change up your voice and the sound of that call is, uh, it makes a big difference, man, on killing turkeys because you can work one turkey several different ways. You can sound different birds. Um, that is what I think is of huge value is to be able to change your voice and what you say. So even if you use just an external read, 
It may not be ultra realistic, but it is still a different voice than say what a diaphragm is. Uh, and I'd like to see guys carry different things. I think you should carry a couple different brands of open read cow calls. I think you should carry a couple different diaphragms that that sound different. I think, you know, if you're really good at diaphragms, maybe pick up something that's really simple that just makes a really simple high high fluty bugle because um, you just don't ever know what they're going to bite on what they're going to hit on but being able to change those things up and have different voices i think is more important and the other thing i'm going to say with that with changing voices and being just proficient enough like you don't have to be a world, world champion caller to hunt elk man but you just need to be proficient enough and i think cadence would be my other really big thing that is going to be as most value to guys when they're hunting what uh another question i get a lot is a lot of guys they get the bulls coming in but it's that last 40 50 yards they can't they get hung up and they're wanting to know recommendations on how to get them in closer and i mean the best techniques i've had is glunking is probably the best technique either that or raking a tree to get a bull to actually get so pissed he comes right in on top of you I think that, and, and I think we screw up a lot. So I think the first thing we screw up on period when we're hunting is we're really impatient and give them time. If if they've come several hundred yards into a call and they're hanging up, just back off a little bit, you know, give them a chance to look for you. I, I think, and I do, I just did this the other day with dad. <laughs> we were, we were turning out the other day. We had birds that hit us like, we were just trying to locate. We had birds hit us like 150 yards off. Kind of, you know, we didn't get set up, didn't get set. And birds came in about 30 yards, still couldn't get a shot for dad and moved some things around. But I called when they were right on top of us, you know, even just trying to close the distance, even though we only needed like 25 feet by the, by calling at them when, when they were within proximity to see things. I called, they didn't have anything they, they could visually lock onto and they quietly packed up and left. And I think it'll do the same thing. So I think being a little patient, let them come. Don't call so hard. Let, let those, if they already came a long ways, let them keep coming. If you're sitting there pounding them too, right out of the gate and it's a hundred yards away and they could see generally hundred yards in timber, right? Like you and I can, you know, especially a pair of binoculars that you can start picking stuff out and movement, give them a chance to find you. Um, I think there's other good little tricks about, like, like if you have like a hunter with you, you can back off them a little bit. You can change that sound of location. You know, you, you can go 20, you know, 50 yards back behind and call him. You know, you can have you have your guy on the trigger sit there. You go back in the woods and move that stuff around. And a lot of times those bulls will keep, keep falling. They'll just keep that proximity of hundred yards. You're just baiting them into, into your trigger guy. Um, but I, I agree with you too. I think different voices, I think little subtle stuff like glunking because glunking is really subtle. They got to look for that raking trees I, I you know all those things i think you need to have in your head and be prepared to do and you know it's always plan a plan b plan c and kind of go down that list of stuff and and see what really works uh, i'm surprised how much walking off your hunter though and calling as you do it how much of those especially smaller bulls though they're way more tentative i think you know that and I think it's always expectations too, you know, it's, are we hunting a elk or the elk? You know, I think that changes things. You know, are you hunting a herd bull or are you just trying to get a guy's tag punched? You know, I think most guys are just hunting a elk and are pretty happy with a nice five by five or, you know, where, you know, not everybody's that way. Yeah. At myself, man, I'll go all season and pass everything. Um, you know, yeah. it, it just depends. 
but yeah. but there's a lot of little stuff that hanging up deal. I, I think using tactics from, from other stuff, from other things we hunt has a lot of value. Turkeys primarily, everybody compares turkeys to elk a ton. And I, I have to completely agree on that, but I, you know, I think too, it, even deer hunting and, and it, really good whitetail guys that can set stands and can look at terrain a little bit and lay the land and already have an idea of how those deer are going to flow. I mean, we got to keep in mind, man, elk are deer too. Like <laughs> they do really similar things, you know, so a, a lot of those other tactics can cross over. And uh, like I said, if you, if you, so many guys are coming out here hunting out West, right. I think more so than maybe even in-state guys, it seems like, at least it seems like it's probably not, but I always feel that way. You know, you guys have a ton of experience hunting back East. A lot of that stuff will cross over. Yeah, no, I, uh, there's sometimes when I just have to tell the hunter, you stay right here. I'm going to walk back here about 150 yep. yards and that that's worked quite a bit for me too, as well. So yeah, moving sound around and just, cause I think it changes the cadence. It just, man, it, there's just something about that that has a different energy to it that I think unlocks them all the time. Yep. You, uh, you got a few hunting stories or a hunting story you'd want to share with us that stands out to you? No, not necessarily. There's too many of them. Um, you know, I, I mean, hunting stories and hunting stories, I guess it, it depends what it pertains to. I'm really good on subject. Like, like we were just talking, you know, it's, well, you and I were talking just a minute ago on the, we were visiting before we started recording, we visit on, on dad. So dad's 80 years old now and he's had Parkinson's for about 17 years. Last 10 years have been rough hunting, but we're down to the point, like we've only got a few more years left to hunt. So we went out last week. I had a buddy Reese level here in town <clears throat> that, that does some land development stuff. Reese called me. We had some turkeys over in Unit Canyon over in Unit 40. And uh, he says, I, I think we can get your dad there. So we're like, I said, we're down to probably this may be the last year or two that dad's going to be able to go hunt. So I'm like, I mean, we're, we'll, we're coming over. So we get over there. We get on those birds, same deal. You know, as I said earlier, we, we got on those turkeys poorly set up and we made the mistake of when you call period, whether it's elk calling or turkey calling, I, I recommend <laughs> at least if you're standing there to kind of look around at your situation and say, okay, if something's right on top of me that I'm not expecting, I can dive into this bush or get by that tree or be prepared for something to happen at least. Cause I think we get our, we get caught with our pants down so often in that situation of, we're just trying to locate something. Something's right there that we had no idea. And it's a, we ended up screwing it up. And we did this. So <laughs> those birds hit to come in. We screw that up. Um, we're, weren't ready. Didn't have a really good spot to get. Uh, birds did their job. We did not do ours. And those turkeys leave. So we get another one going. And uh, dad can't move a whole lot. Like, like he uses walking sticks. And, you know, we can only walk 500 yards at a time generally before we got to sit down and rest. And, so we got another one going and sure enough, though, it was the same deal as we, as we were just talking about it. It was, he comes in about a hundred yards, can't see anything. It's really open where we're at and he hangs up. So Reese grabs the same, same deal. It hits Reese's head because he's, he's a Arkansas boy. So he's very astute turkey. And he's like, Hey man, you got a slate I can borrow? I'm like, yeah. So I hand him a slate and striker and he takes off through the bushes, same deal. And uh, just starts yelping and cutting and moving sound around and all those stuff. The entire, there was more turkeys that came alive there than what we knew was there. So 
same deal, just backing up, moving sound around. Um, and then that turkey just unlocked that hundred yards, came straight down to dad's to dad on the gun barrel. And uh, with everything he's, he's fighting still, we were able to finally get him close enough about 10 yards away and, and killing the turkey. So it was a, it was a good day for that for sure. But I never thought it was, it's funny. I never thought he would go this far. You know, anybody that's watched Wayne Carlton over the years, you watch the, the crazy antics and the bear videos and, Calling bears into like six feet and spraying with pepper spray. And I can tell you, man, growing up with him, with the crazy crap he's done with horses and mules, I either figured he was going to die on a horse accident, mule accident of some some type and self-created, or he was going to have like a Brad Pitt legend of the fall death, stabbing a bear with a knife. Like, I guess he just was always doing crazy stuff like that. It was over the top. So, you know, we're in a different spot than what we had planned, but I, I was glad to get one more last adventure in there with him and, and have something that was, you know, successful and memorable. And I don't think I've been able to hunt with him. And just because of business, you know, that's it's one bad thing to, too about growing up in the hunting industry. It does kind of grab you and take you. And uh, it definitely took him and kept him on the road a couple hundred days a year. And I don't think we've hunted together, man, in 20 years and and been successful in, in, in that. So it, it was a good, it was a good hunt, man. Yeah, that's cool, man. That was, that was pretty cool to share. Uh, what about the uh, new grunt tube? I think I've seen you guys got a new grunt tube coming out for this so year. So the new tube, going back to to calls a little bit, we, like I said, we've, we made a piece of crap tube that I hated there for about five years. But I wanted to, when we started back in 2015, I, I had some ideas that I wanted to get started on the table, which was the custom stuff, right? So like the custom open reads and like the old tooth stuff that we did, the higher end. Like I, I knew what I wanted to do with that. But diaphragms, I wanted to kind of get lined out, and we and we did the first version rip it, which we liked, but we've improved that some. And but I, it just gave us time to kind of get our feet really back in the water and really figure out where we wanted to go. And, and tubes was one that was super high on the list. So we ended up with a. Uh, it's going to be about eight, 18 inches long. It's going to be more of a mid mid size tube, but it's not big. But the whole key for us on that was making something that was still compact enough to go hunting that wasn't like there's some great tubes out there man but crap they're so big I, there's just no way i'm going to pack them you know i think if you're guiding and, and your hands are free to do stuff i think that's one thing but as a hunter like i still solo hunt and i still go super deep in the i mean i'm still so far back in there it's it's about as remote as colorado gets i i you know size of things and everything that carries and functionality still makes a really big difference to me so we wanted something small enough. So we did 18 inches long overall, but it's the, the main baffle is only five inch. We kept the diameter of four. So it has some really good thump, but designing the handle and getting everything in, in place still holds really good back pressure. So you can still really pop all those notes out and still have really, really good performance out of your reads. And then we added in a height. One of the best things we did on the earlier version of tubes when we were playing with stuff is we did an acrylic mouthpiece back in 2015 and that really went over well so we have kept that um i don't think i'm gonna make any money on the mouthpiece but it's such a critical piece of the tube that we went ahead and said man we're just going to eat we're just going to make sure it's part of that package it's just too critical of a piece to not have it in there so that'll be the finished piece but we should be we're on track to have an august one ship date on all those tubes nice yeah yeah i think the guys in camp our guides and stuff, they're pretty excited to uh, rip on them new calls this fall. Yeah, the new stuff's been, for, so I, and Ed, I'm, 
I mean this, man. I'm about the hardest to please guy on the planet. I, I'm the guy that always is hyper self-critical. I'm really happy with what we've done this year. The V3 has been, that thing runs like a jet. I like the tube. Um, everything we've really dialed in this year, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with. So uh, I'm thinking that's going to be, we've done well in the past, but I think I think the new product this year is really going to shift gears for guys. They perform really well. They perform really easy. And I think if you pair it up with, and even if it's not R2, there's some out there that really back pressure well that I think it's going to run good for everybody. Heck yeah, we're pretty pumped to uh, going to be using them. I've got a, a few questions here from some of my Instagram followers. They had questions yeah. for you. First one is, how aggressive should I call during the elk rut? Depends where you're at. Right. So are you hunting public land that has a lot of pressure on it? I think that changes the game significantly. But if you've got a unit where your elk are able to act like elk, and I'd recommend that first, <laughs> it makes a big difference. Um, dude, I, I call hard. I, I go after it. Um, I think one thing that guys miss a lot, and I do bugle a ton and I do aggressively. I uh, run those open recalls a ton. And it's, it's funny, I have this conversation with guys, like the question comes up a lot, like what's your favorite elk call? My answer to that is the one that works. But primarily that quite often is like that is will be an open read call, cow call. And I'm almost to the point, like if you stuck me like, okay, I mean, you can have your bugle tube and your diaphragms or you can have, you know, you can have your little bitty open read whiny cow call. I've I lean heavily towards the cow call. I think I would take that over my diaphragms. We've just done that well with open reads and being really aggressive with them calling. Like we, we don't just, we don't go light on, we, we call pretty hard, but we've done more damage with those than anything. And I think that that's kind of what it comes down to. But as far as how aggressive we are, it is going to depend on. So if you're hunting unit 62 in Colorado, so unit 62 is the busiest unit in the state of Colorado. Um, it's big. It's like 800,000 acres and it's almost all huntable. But there are people all over the freaking thing, especially since COVID. We shut down some units in Colorado, changed some things. Dude, there's more people up there. Um, calling gets to be really hard. Uh, you're without a doubt, you're going to be running into people by noon everywhere. So I think that changes how you call. I think that would switch me over to locate bugles at night and being really, really light and soft during the day. Uh, it would change my tactics quite a bit. But if you're hunting where I, you know, where I prefer to, which is Gunnison Basin area, where it's really remote elk hunting, it's still, you know, I let it rip, man. I don't back off nothing. I, I call pretty hard. Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of like that. My brothers kind of make fun of me a little bit about it, but I, I just like to test the waters to see what what's going to work and what's not going to work during during hunting season well and it comes down to pressure too so even even if you call hard pressure changes you know like at a thousand yards even a pressured area if it's a thousand yards away there's not a lot of pressure at that elk at a thousand yards they'll bugle back and answer when you start getting 500 yards on in i think we indirectly start putting pressure on them just by sound coming in right so even if they have been called to a bunch and you do get a legitimate pull the bugling back to you when you hit 500 yards and you're in a pressured area start shutting down make the next 400 yards get within 100 or somewhere where you think you're you're in that i always kind of call it the, the bubble deal 
you know, everybody's, you know, you're a thousand yards of bugling, elk answer all over the place, and then you get close, and then they shut up, and they move around, and I think as soon as you get in that bubble within 100, 150 yards of those elk, and you're pretty confident of that, I think if you can get inside that barrier there and then hit them with it, it's a lot more of a slap in the face, and you have a way better chance of calling them in than if you're 200 yards, 300 yards, and you're calling the whole damn way coming in. I think you need to get them to bugle to, to get them somewhat located, and then you need to work on getting in there without bugling too much. If you're lucky, they're going to bugle their heads off and run into you, but quite often I think you have to hunt a little smarter and get within that bubble before you can really jerk their cord to get them to come in. Yeah, no, I I hear you there. There's some bulls, like you say, where you – like what I like to do is – soon as i get out there first night i'll crank off a few bugles and let locate them and then kind of play with them a little bit and if they're not coming or they're not moving i'm like you i try to get in as close as i can before i start glunking or cow calling again yeah and and bugling too so uh, this is a good question because it covers a lot of little uh, you know several small things if you do a really high fluty bugle I usually start out in, in in somewhere in there in my opening calling routine. Like I, a lot of time, my opening calling routine will be a cow call of some type with some natural cadence, and then I'll bugle if I don't get anything to answer, and I'll just wait. I give them time. Um, if I'm in a really elk area and I feel like something should be there, and there usually is, I'll sit for 45 minutes and call every 15 minutes and give them time. I've had elk sit there not say a damn thing for an hour. And then they'll finally bugle. It just takes them. I mean, I think we, it goes back to that being impatient thing. I, I think we're really impatient. I think you need to go get in, get set up and just give them time. You hunt enough private land, Ed, that I'm sure you're kind of in the same boat. Like, like you guys are almost forced to have to be patient at times because you only got so much room to go. But out west on the public land, if you can just keep walking, guys keep walking. But if you are in an area, you know, and you know, there's out there, give them some time. You know, a lot of times they're there and they'll bugle be. I mean, it may be an hour before they bugle the first time. Just got to be patient. Yeah, no, I, I always, I'm a big, the Solner guy. I go off the moon phases and stuff, and I watch okay. that closely. A lot of my brothers and guys kind of get after me. They're like, "Does that really work?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, I've found a, it's usprimetimes.com is the one I use, and it, it yep. works. I mean, ninety six percent of the time. I mean, when it tells you to go out, guys think I'm crazy. They're like, "What do you want to go out in the middle of the day for?" I'm like, "Hey, man." Every time this thing says this is the best movement, it's within, I mean, a half hour of when right. stuff's going to be moving. So, and I go through like bugles too. Don't be afraid to, to get really nasty at times. Like I know bugling, a lot of times we do something really simple like this and there's just not much there, right? It's just a nice young sounding bull that's, and I, and I use that. I'm, and I'm not going to lie, I'm, I'm used that 90% of the time. But I've had elk break loose, and the story is we had a guy up at Timberline in Silverton one year, and we had a muzzleloader come in on us wearing like a blue blazer and orange on top of that. And yeah, you could tell the guy was not an avid hunter, in my opinion, just from his choice of apparel. But so <laughs> we did what, you know, you probably shouldn't. So I fired up, and we figured all of our elk hunting was screwed up, so... I went after raking trees and bugling like a nut and just, I mean, like competition level calling stuff where I'm just, you know, I'm just laying to it. And sure enough, a damn elk bugles. We had no clue was there. 
He wouldn't answer anything else, wouldn't answer the cow calls, wouldn't answer the high fluty stuff that we're taught to use, you know, the the sound like a younger bull. And, and it's a good rule, but it ain't the only rule, man. Every rule I've decided has is is going to be broken at some point. And but there was elk there and they didn't answer anything else. And they didn't answer us till we went the other direction with it. So uh, keep your mind open. You know, it, try different things, throw different things out. I mean, it's like fishing, man, throw different lures out there if something's not working. Yeah, no, I've, uh, I've found that, I mean, chuckling really gets them bulls fired up yeah. out, out there in Colorado where we're at. So I agree. And, but to think about it, not a lot of guys are proficient at chuckling or even glunking. Like guys don't think about it that much because they're not proficient at it, you know? So, so again, it goes back to, Kaiden to that earlier and and I it's very understated but cadence is a big deal sound and organic and real and not repetitive I hate you know we started the the squeeze me hoochie mama craze right so we did squeeze me we almost did the hoochie mama but that is the most repetitive sounding thing in the woods man it's the same thing over and over and over again and there's no like like once they get dialed into it, they're dialed into it, but the cadence of it. And and that's one reason I really do like open reeds and diaphragms is you can really put some flow to it. You can put something that makes it feel organic and natural. And I think that is of high value. I don't think it has to be perfect and sound, but I think the cadence, it makes a big difference. For sure. This uh, next question, have you ever shot a 400 inch bull? No. And I'm going to say most of us have not. So <laughs> even that, I'm, that, that question, you had sent me that stuff before to kind of eyeball some of it. I forgot we were doing this, but I've laughed. I was like, hell, who has killed a 400 inch bull? Like <laughs> that's uh, dude. How, how many people do you think shoot 400 inch elk? Like seriously? Yeah. I mean, like there's thought... a handful a year, like, like throughout the West, man, it's, it's gotta be like one in a, a you know, thousands of people that, are able to shoot a true 400 inch elk yeah i mean the only ones you usually hear about killing stuff like that are guys that get like the statewide tags or right primo tags pretty much are the only ones i mean don't get me wrong there's anybody could knock one down anywhere if you i mean it all comes yeah. down to being lucky yeah. is what i say well it comes down like but there's also that correlation of time spent in the woods right like the, the, the more you're there the more opportunities are created um i missed uh I missed a 360 last season, you know, but even that's a career elk for a guy, for most guys. And it's not one that I called in. I just happened to be in the right place, right time, and 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 just caught a window of them coming through. You know, how often does that happen? You know, it's it's super hard. Even dad, I mean, I looked at that question too cracks me because I always, always giggle at this. Dad forever, like he's got a career of hunting of high-end tags. Of, he's been to the Hickory and the White Apache and Man, that dude has hunted some elk, right? The biggest bull he has on his wall is 398 and seven eights. It's still not 400, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's still not there. But so yeah. I don't, you know, I, that's a hard deal. You know, anybody that kills him, man, I, I hope they truly appreciate how, how much of a rarity that is to even be able to go hunt those big elk. Like, man, I'm, I'm having a ball if I can hunt 380s, 375s. Like that's, that was a good season for me. Yeah, especially I mean, I, in Colorado. I tell guys once they get above 350, it's pretty hard to tell if they're going to be 360, 370 because it's only two inches on right, man. And, and like I've got a good tag coming up this year, and I'm already in my head because I got into some stuff last year, dude. I mean, I had a ball last year. 
completely by myself. And I haven't had a chance to hunt for myself in years because I've always got guys from, you know, whether it's the fire department guys, which is a lot, <clears throat> this is my day job. Anybody, of course, fire department understands the brotherhood issue. Um, I'm always taking everybody else. I, I've, I deem myself as more of a professional guide than anything, but going back and picking up a bow last year, man, I was rusty about killing. I had a lot of things to, it's like, man, it's been a while since I've been on the trigger, but I got to chase 360s, some legit 380s and man, it's 400s, man. They're rare. You're not going to find them anywhere. Yeah. They're, they're almost that unicorn status now. They, I, I completely agree on that. It's, I think it's easier to kill a 200-inch mule deer all day long than it is probably a 400-inch elk. Yeah, I think I posted that question on my Instagram one day, and I think everybody was saying it's easier to kill a 200-inch deer than a 400-inch elk. I think so, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, like I said, enjoy them. Next question is, what is the best hunting clothes to wear in your opinion? Uh, so I could give a rip about camouflage pattern. Um, I think that's, I think camouflage patterns are primarily for people as far as what looks good on the shelf. I mean, if you think about it, man, I mean, Fred Bear wore plaid for how many years, right? And solid pants. I, I, I think we get a little carried away with that. I have gotten though very particular about performance stuff um i don't carry a lot when i'm hunting and i don't so my my elk hunting stuff because i'm still hunting public land in colorado right um everything is just as far as i can get but i'm still hunting on my back so i i usually like my plan this next year is to pretty much stay on my back and keep moving um i think it's be my best option to try to kill a, a something you know something i want to go chase anyways but something bigger purple stuff but i carry a bivy sack i sleep underneath pine trees i you know i go as lightweight as i can um my, my clothing gear i think you need a really good set of top and bottom down i think you need a zero degree bag i think you need you know especially on apparel um it doesn't have to be perfect rain gear i actually end up in like a just even like cheap cabela's rain gear because it's just small and compact you know, they're not great. They're going to be one season and done, you know, if you wear more than half a dozen times, it's not great rain gear, but it serves its purpose for me to stay light and be able to stay mobile. But I think for the performance gear too, man, I, I mean, it's, it has become popular for a reason. You know, it's, it, it makes a big difference, especially when you're moving and, you know, you know how it is in Colorado, man, it can be 80 degrees one day and literally snow three days later and snow a foot. So you just don't know. So it's always that prepare for the worst and hope for the best but down seems to be like to man have some good down have some good rain gear make sure your ass doesn't get wet i wear a lot of merino base layer type stuff um and i usually have i always run gaiters too a good pair of gaiters because that saves the bottom into my pants and keeps them from tearing stuff up i just get more out of my day and my clothes um and so i but I, I stay pretty pretty minimal man i stay a hoodie a couple base layers and keep it as simple as i can i i don't you know it goes back to two, especially as guys, like you and I both worked as guys a lot. And one of the first questions I always ask guys coming hunting is what their expectations were. Because every hunt plays a lot differently. What they want to hunt, are we are we just filming the tag? Are we trying to shoot a trophy bull? I mean, all those things changes the dynamics a lot. You know, it's the same deal on, on gear too, man. If, you, if you're going to be in the backcountry and you're not going to be able to get dry, I, you know, I don't live in a world of comfort when I'm hunting. It's It's hard 
and it hurts and you sleep underneath trees and it's not comfortable. And I almost do it on purpose because I hunt more. You know, I, I don't want to come back to a big comfy camp for me. I, I don't hunt as much. I mean, I, I, I want it to be kind of halfway crappy. I just want to sleep and eat, get up, man, and keep rolling. That's kind of my goal. But I'm deep enough in I have to stay minimal. So I don't back up much, man, on, on gear. As far as clothes, you know, it's go ahead and spend the money if you're going to go hard. But probably, I, well, so it's a good question. Let's see even clothes, though. What's your most two important pieces of gear, man, for you, Ed? I know what my answer is. Yeah, I mean, gear-wise, I've got my pretty much a jacket and my rain gear in my pack all at all times, just because yeah. you never know what's going to yeah. happen. But I spend so I, I spend three to five days on, on my back, remote by myself. <clears throat> my two of my biggest important pieces for me is my boots and my socks and my pack. Like those two things, I will not hesitate to spend money. I'll spend less money on a bow and arrows and all that other stuff. I think, man, good boot I, guys murder themselves out here on boots because they. They ended up like, you know, they're, they're coming out. So like, well, I got to buy a new pair of boots. And they look at it like, oh, I don't want to spend $500 on a pair of boots. And I don't blame them. But if you're going to motor some, you know, $150 pair of boots, I will smoke through and they will leave you lame and not hunt. And you're going to end up missing half your hunt. Like it's, there's a few pieces that are pretty critical in, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really uh, realize insoles were a big part of hunting till these last couple of years when I started using those, I don't know if you've heard of them, those sheep feed insoles. And I, I try have to, it. Have you been? I, yeah. I, I try to wear, wear though. I try to wear my boots all summer when I'm hiking. If I get a new pair of them, that way I don't just go into hunting camp, throw them on for the first time. The first week I like to get them broke in because I, I learned the lesson the hard way one year. I got a brand new pair and, threw them on the first week guide and I started hiking up the hill and I'm like, man, I'm going to have yeah. blisters like no other when I yeah. get back. No, it's a deal. And I think guys make that mistake a ton. Um, you know, if we're going guided hunt, I think this changes the equation a ton. I think the expectation question still has to be asked, you know, cause if you're hunting out of a lodge, that's a, one situation. If you're hunting out of a wall tent, you know, you got to go ride a horse for four hours. I think that's something to take in. I, I've, we, I've murdered some people on saddles, man, even in four hours, guys, get calloused up and blistered and they can barely walk um i think there's some due diligence there from hunters coming in that need to be more aware of <laughs> what the hell they're getting into uh if you're doing remote <clears throat> remote hunting on your own in colorado which is a huge huge category for us right guys are never it's one of those deals you're never going to be physically prepared even guys that live here hunt and dig in and I, like I, I'm my best at the end of elk season. I'm I'm pretty gnarly at the end of elk season, but man, even in the beginning of season, even if I'm in shape, man, it still hurts. And you go through an adjustment process of getting tuned in physically. And I have figured out, so I, I've used this at the firehouse a lot. So we, we have to, we care, keep our wildland certifications up. So for wildland, and I don't, you probably got some buddies that are wildland firefighters. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I got so, a few. so you have to do an annual pack test, right? So pack test for wildland to keep your red card, to keep you certified, to be able to go fight fire. And th this is the bare minimum to be able to go fight fire out west is you have to run your pack test for red card. It's 45 pounds on your back, flat ground, and you have to do it within 45 minutes. So two things happen here. One, <laughs> packs become critical on what's comfortable and what can carry weight at speed. Um, but two, I can... 
promise you right now, I, I make sure I can run this a couple times a year. If I'm not 36, 35 minutes, I'm going to have a pretty miserable time at elk season and I'm going to be drastically slow. If you can't walk three miles in 45 minutes with 45 pounds, you're really going to lose. I, I mean, you're going to lose out on your hunt. You're, you're going to waste money. You're going to lose opportunities. Um, I, I think guys, I try not to get too, too keyed up on this, but from a guiding aspect, man, I've seen more guys fail there than anything of just not truly understanding how big the mountains are and how hard it's going to be. Can be, I shouldn't say that because I, I do think guiding changes things. I mean, like I said, I think if you're hunting out of a lodge and you're a tree stand hunting over water holes. That's one thing, but man, if you're trying to go by yourself in Colorado, that's, that's a game changer. Yeah, for sure. Last, last question. What's your favorite call of all time? Um, it goes, and I kind of answered that earlier, I think. So we had that old fighting cow call that we sold for years that we've called more elk in with that than anything. If I had only one call that I could take into the woods to hunt with, it would still be, we've done a, a different version of it now that, that we have that I've, I've tried to improve that call quite a bit. And I think I have, but if I'm, if, if you, like I said, if you give me the option of bugle tubes and diaphragms or or that little bitty green weenie thing that we sell, I yeah, would the, probably take that open read call. Yeah, the green weenie is one of my uh, favorite calls too. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I know it's one of those deals. It's guys are always surprised when I answer that back because it's simple and it's you know what I mean. It's it's not a it's not a world changer by any means, but we've called more elk in with those style calls than anything. Yep, yeah, I love running mouth reads, man. I love juggling in the woods and and calling for me is this so everybody always looks at it as a tool or an accessory and it is but man I, I think it's a little deeper than that I think when you're calling an elk or bugling and, and you're communicating back and forth and that I think it's just way more connective to the hunt and the process and what you do and I really dude I just dig into that hard I think it's no different than a lot of guys end up archery hunting because they, they want a deeper experience and more more connection to what they're doing you know a, a rifles pretty 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 separate man this just it's just not the same connection as shooting something with a bow and arrow but i think calling is is another piece of that too i think calling something in and having a bugle and all hell breaking loose man I, I just think it's a different richer experience yeah my uh wife she knows it's getting close to hunting season because when i break <laughs> break out the reeds and the mouth calls and stuff and, and it is man it's here i was thinking about man it's just like we just pulled tags colorado just got all their tags out just this week Man, it's like, oh, man, it's all right. I got to start tooling up, carrying weight, getting yeah, my, ready. My wife, she knows knows it's within a month or so because I'll break out the calls and start. I'll give one to my little boy and have him go in a room and I'll start bugling. <laughs> he'll he'll start cow calling back to me. But yeah, it's pretty fun. Good deal. So and too, man, I I didn't talk about it earlier, but since we're still on recording now, let's put together a. Uh, the sales order code for the guys too. I'll let you get that posted up and we'll figure out what you want to do for order code, but you know, let's do like a 30% off sale for, for your listeners too, to help guys out and, and get them going on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we could just do something like MT 30 or something. Yep. Sure. All caps, MT 30 done. Yeah. All caps for you listeners out there. If you want to go on native by Carlton website, punch in MT 30 at checkout. Like Mark said, 30% off. Cool. I, pre I appreciate that, man. No, you bet. I said, we, I want to see everybody kind of be successful and 
enjoy hunting and get into calling more and more. Anything I can do to help guys get there, that's the main thing. Yeah, I mean, that's what I tell guys. There, I get a lot of messages on my Instagram saying, hey, you got any tips here? And I'm like, yeah, if I got on X points that I've been in that unit and hunted, I'm more than happy to share with you. Yeah, I do my best I can there, so. But. Unless we're in the same unit at the same time, then I'm I'm going to have to point you in another direction. But yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I might have to get you four or five hundred yards away from my pins, just so you're not yeah. right, right, right on top right. top of me. But but no, out. I did that last year. We, I ran a podcast last fall, and I had some guys calling like, "Man, I I got attacked for such and such unit. I just happened to be over there, and I put some X's on the map." And but it goes back to what I was just saying too. They, I put the X on the map, and I'm like, "Man, there's a wallow here, there's elk here, there's and they." They were like, holy shit, we can't get there. It's that's like we went and looked at it, it's too big, you know. So like I said, be prepared. Yeah, no, for sure. What uh besides the at native by Carlton on Instagram and the native by Carlton.com, is there any other places you want to shout out on here? Well, I mean, we're gonna we've been trying to work the bigger vendor a little bit. Like we should have some product this year, like Sportsman's Warehouse and those guys. Um, but we're we're kind of getting our fingers everywhere. It's still going to be core audience uh, as far as like guys that are really tuning in and really trying to be better elk hunters. And, you know, I think it's hard to go buy good good stuff over at Walmart, but we're we're getting a little bit out there for vendors. Um, it's funny, I got some phone calls to make this week. I know the only ones really bit into the new stuff this year so far has been sportsmen's, but we'll have some there. Um, but a lot of it's online at this point. You guys got a YouTube channel? We do. I need to nurture it way, way better. I need more Indians helping out, but we got a small YouTube channel. Um, we're, we try to feed it as much as we can. We're kind of, I'm waiting for these tubes to come in too, and, and we'll keep, keep pushing that direction and trying to get more videos out there. Right on, man. Well, I appreciate you hopping on today and giving us a little history and backstory on Native by Carlton, how it came about. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. So, and for, for all the outfitters too, I know we do talk to those guys a bunch too. We do do some outfitter pricing too. I, I want I want every outfitter out there running our stuff that can. So uh, like I said, all the outfitters we visit with and work with, you know, we, we got the tools to help you. Yeah, and like I say, anybody anybody that ever comes in contact with me, they know uh, I've been using the Carlton calls for a long time, and so that's pretty much all I recommend. All right, man. All right, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you. You bet.